Is it really worth it? Remember, we had a, uh, it was a couple months after Victoria and I got married, we had a, uh, an F5 tornado coming right at us. Uh, it was coming straight up the highway from Oklahoma City, right towards Tulsa, right up this, uh, this Highway 44, and if it would have kept going straight, it, it was like it had a target right where we were living, in the apartment we were living. And uh, we, uh, uh, we took all our photo albums from our month, uh, from our wedding we had just gotten that month, and we put them in the oven and we locked the oven. So why would you do that? Well, in that moment, they were precious to us. We wanted to, to hold on to them. We wanted to preserve those memories in those photographs just in case that tornado did not change course, in case it destroyed the, the, uh, the building and the place where we were living. And when you're on the verge of great loss, you begin to see what is precious to you. Our text this morning is some of the most precious verses in all of Scripture. May you cherish these words now. May they become precious to you so that in times of loss, you may remember Christ who is most precious to us. Romans chapter 3, beginning at the end of verse 22. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is without error. There is no flaw anywhere in Holy Scripture so that we might not doubt it. So that it may in fact be the sure foundation of our faith. Father, we pray that, uh, that your word would ring true to us that we would have ears to receive Your Word as truth, that Your Word would be, in fact, the foundation upon which we stand, the foundation upon which our faith is grounded. We ask that You would help us to understand these precious verses this morning. Lord, I pray that Your grace and Your Spirit would be upon me as Your preacher, that what I say would be true to what you have revealed. Father, I ask that if there are errors in my speech and the words that I use, I pray that you would minimize those in the ears of those who would hear and listen. I pray for those who are listening this morning that their ears and their mind would be objects of your grace as well, that what they hear would ring true to what you have revealed. I pray that you would enable them to filter rightly and to understand rightly what you have declared in your word this morning. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your Holy Spirit to work upon your word if your word is to be implanted in us and to bear much fruit 
in us. We thank you, Father, that you are sovereign, that you are good, even over the preaching of your word. May it be a blessing to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. We typically think of four-letter words as being the words that are dirty or despicable. Rarely do any five-letter words make that list. However, I want to give you one this morning. And if you keep your ear to the ground, I think you might uh, hear this word becoming more despicable the next year and the year to come. It's the word draft. Draft. D-R-A-F-T. Military.com posted an article this week, an opinion piece this week, discussing how they should institute another military draft. As you know, the military recruiting uh, under our current administration has been abysmal. People do not want to join the military. And those that have been in the military, at least the conservatives who have been in the military, are being purged from it. And this has been going on, of course, for a couple of years. And so, uh, what's going to happen with the circumstances in Ukraine and other places around the world? What's going to happen if the efforts of our administration actually bring about a greater war? Well, the result is that they are going to need soldiers. Hence, there is a renewed discussion among military brass about reinstituting a draft. So what are you going to do if your son or your grandson, or perhaps daughter or granddaughter, right? Because that's the, the, the world in which we live. What happens if they get drafted? Like, it's kind of scary to think about having a son at that age. I'm using this question of the draft and the reality of it because I want you to start thinking about how to prepare about the things that could happen in this life. How do you prepare for the things that could be in our near future? How do you prepare for and this could apply to a wide variety of circumstances. How do you prepare for what is to come? And not just prepare, but how do you prepare rightly for things that could be in our future? Well, here is a simple but necessary first step to all preparation. The best way to prepare for anything in this world is to prepare for the world to come. Listen to what Paul writes, Corinthians, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, and this is a command from Paul, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Which is more important, 
this life or the life to come. Now listen to what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. He said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is a contrast that plays out in Scripture between finding the things of this world precious or finding the things in the world to come as precious. If the things of this world are precious in your sight, then the things of the world to come will not be precious in your sight. And vice versa, if the things of the world to come are precious in your sight, then the things of this world will not be as precious in your sight. You can almost think of it as a scale, right? As one increases, the other decreases. How do we come to cherish the things of heaven? How do we come to see the things of the world to come as more precious than the things of this world here and now? How do we come to prepare for that world while living here and now in this world? This morning, I want to give you five truths that must be embraced if we are to prepare and be prepared for that world. Because these five truths will reorient us to see this world as God sees it. So I think this, these five essential truths will not only prepare us in the case of a draft, but they will also prepare us to face whatever might happen in this world. Right? So to be prepared for what happens in this world, we must be prepared for what will happen in the world to come. How are we to be prepared for that world which is to come? Here are five essential truths. The first essential truth is this, I am no different. I'm no different. There is not something special about me because of who I am. I don't possess a certain quality trait that makes me in some way superior or better than anyone else. In fact, I am like everyone else. Our text almost says it this exact way. Verse 22, there is no difference or there is no distinction. Now, who is our text here referring to? Now, the context here is the difference between Jew and Gentile or between the Jew and the non-Jew, right? Because that's what Gentiles are. Gentiles are non-Jews. Throughout Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul is identifying each group and he is pointing out questions and issues about the groups, about the Jews and the non-Jews, or about the Jews and the Gentiles. And the reason for this was because the use of Jew and Gentile had particular reference to God's 
covenant community. There were those who belonged to God's outward, God's visible covenant community. And then there was everyone else. This is one of the major points that we see there in the Old Testament. God had called his people to be separate, to be distinct from the rest of the world. And so we have to ask, in what ways are Jews different or no different from the Gentiles? Were they different because they were morally superior? Right? Well, Paul answered that question in the beginning of chapter 3. He said, absolutely not. But he said the Jews did have an advantage. Romans 3.1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision, right? Bearing the mark of outward uh, participation or acceptance in God's covenant community. What, what is the advantage? And he says, much in every way, chiefly, or to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the revelation of God. God delivered a special revelation to and through the, the, the Jewish nation, through those Old Testament covenants, so that God might be known, so that the world might be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, did that make them different, better than the rest? of the non-Jews? And the answer, verse 9, says, are we Jews any better off? And the answer is, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Right? Is there a place to talk about different abilities, to talk about different personalities, to talk about different giftings that people have? Is there a place for all that? And the answer is, yes, there is such a place to talk about that. Right to recognize that there are distinctions and differences within humanity. However, Paul here is looking at what is foundational to our condition as humans. Now, in our climate, in our political climate today, you hear a lot of people accused accusing and being accused of, of, of being Nazis, or you're like Hitler. You wonder, well, why are they picking his name? And that's, that's simply because I think everybody, almost everybody, recognizes Hitler as an evil man, right? One of the worst of humanity. But what Paul is pointing out here is that the same nature that Hitler had or Nero had is the same human nature that is in all of fallen man. The human nature is the same. There is no distinction because we're all under sin. How we might sin might be different. How our personalities and our circumstances in life might be different. But there is no difference in this that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I am no different than even the worst of the people who have lived. That's number one, the first essential truth. I am no different than everybody else. Number two, the second essential truth is this, I have sinned and fallen short. This is that puts everyone on the same plane or the same playing field before God. This is the truth that is rejected by our society, right? 
Our, our culture today hates to acknowledge this and, and hates this idea that there is none righteous. Right? You hear people talk all the time, oh, he's a good person. Right? There is this attitude, this, the, it's very prevalent, especially on social media, about so-and-so being a good person. Right? We like to pat ourselves on the back to think of ourselves as good people. And we'll even put down other people in order to make ourselves look good. But this is exactly contrary to what God says. And the reason why people want to reject that first essential truth, right? The reason people want to say, well, I am different for them, is is because the first truth leads to the second essential truth. Verse 23 begins with the word gar in Greek, right? It's the Greek word that means for this reason. There is no distinction. Why? Well, here's the reason why there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. And everyone has fallen short. Now, there are two verbs here. One is active and one is passive. Right? Everyone has sinned. That's the active verb. This is what everyone does. We might do it differently. Right? We might sin in one way that somebody else might not sin in, but they might sin in a way that I might not sin. And we all sin, even though we all might do it differently. Right? It's an active verb. What is sin? Sin, as the Westminster Confession reminds us, or defines for us, is falling short. Um, sin is a, a lack of conformity to or a transgression of the law of God, right? Two parts to the definition of sin. It is a, 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 a lack of conforming to, right? God's law commands us what we're to do. God's law expects obedience from us. It expects us an obedience in a multitude of ways. It tells us what to be. It tells us what to think. God's law tells us what to desire. God's law tells us what to say. God's law tells us to act or behave in certain ways. And so sin is a lack of conforming to those days, uh, to those ways that he has commanded of us. The fourth commandment. Remember the Lord's day. Remember the Sabbath day to what? To keep it holy. The whole day, right? There's a commandment that God expects of us to keep. And so the idea of lack of conforming to means that we're not keeping the Lord's day holy. The whole day. That's an example. Right? So we're told of, of what God expects of us to do. We're to conform to what His law commands. But there's a second aspect to sin, and that is that we transgress God's law. Right? God has told us also what not to do. We're not to violate God's law. We're not to transgress God's law. So this idea then in verse 24 we are fallen. Uh, we have sinned. The second half of that, we have fallen. This is, a, this is something I've wrestled with a little bit. We typically try to define our fallenness in, type, in, in terms of our sinfulness. And they are certainly related, but I want you to notice, it says that we are fallen. In what way are we fallen? We are falling, or we have fallen short of the glory of God. 
How do we understand that? And uh, I was thinking of an analogy that might help with this, and I kept thinking of Chernobyl, right? You remember Chernobyl, the uh, uh, the Russian power plant, nuclear power plant. Initially, when it was uh, when it exploded, it killed 31 people, but then there were tens of other tens of thousands of other people that died uh, because of the fallout. And I was thinking about that event as trying to illustrate this idea of falling short. It's the idea of not performing up to the designed standard. Right, what happened at Chernobyl, there was a, 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 a necessary quality to the ingredients that they should have used to construct that structure, and they didn't. They went cheap, and those elements failed, and it blew up. It didn't design what it was supposed to do. I was talking about that yesterday out on the river, and uh, perhaps it was because of the river that Elijah and Justin reminded me of another great example, right? The Titanic, right? The Titanic, supposed to be the, well, the, the, the greatest ship that had been built to date. And uh, uh, the unsh- unsinkable ship, the most sophisticated vessel ever to be built, right? The, the, the praise and the accolades were just flowing to the people, to the designers that were involved in creating this. And then what happened? who knew better made just about the worst decision he could make human error took down the great they they were supposed to have taken into account everything that they could to make this a safe ship unsinkable they said and yet he sank it it failed. It did not live up to what it was designed to do. All the praises and the glories that were heaped on this ship and its designers being so incredible, guess what? How much glory is there in a ship that's sitting at the bottom of the sea? The reason for number one, that there is no difference, is because we all sin, active verb, And two, because the passive verb here, we have fallen short of what God has designed us to do. God designed us to glorify Him. God designed us to enjoy Him. In every circumstance in life, in fact, part of God's command, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There is never a circumstance in life in which you are not commanded to rejoice. Regardless of how bad, in every circumstance, there is a command to rejoice in God Almighty. And yet, do we do that? No, we have fallen short of that. We don't give God the glory and the praise that He is due. This is the condition of every person. The third essential truth is this. I cannot earn my place. Verse 24 says, And are justified by His grace as a gift. Paul uses a very theological word here. Justified. What is justification? The big answer from the shorter catechism is this. Uh, Justification is an act of God's free grace 
whereby he pardons all our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Big fancy definition, right? What it is describing, though, is a change, a fundamental change in our relationship to God. Those who have been justified are those who now belong to the kingdom of light. They are the ones who now get to be in God's presence and have a right relationship with God. Everyone else who is not justified is still under God's sin, under sin and under God's wrath. Those who are justified have access to God and to all the graces of God's benevolence. Those who have not been justified, well, their standing before God is still as one who is under God's wrath, under God's displeasure, under a guilty verdict. The third essential truth that that Paul is drawing out here for us is that I cannot earn my place. I cannot change my standing before God. It's something I'm not capable of doing. I have, I'm a sinner, right? I have sinned now. I've sinned differently than you, right? But I can't change my position. I can't change my nature before God. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have the ability to do that. Elsewhere in the scripture, and for example, back up in verse 11, we see that no one seeks God. There's no one that's righteous, and therefore there's no one that seeks Him. I can't change my standing before God. I cannot earn my place. Why? Justification, we are told, is a gift. It's a gift that is brought about because of God's grace. Justification, God's declaration that I have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that I am now acceptable in his sight when before I was not acceptable in his sight, when before I was guilty under the law and now I am no longer guilty under the law. All that change has happened not because of what I have done, not because I am able to bring that about, but because in his grace he has justified me as a gift. Now, why would God do that? Why would God justify anyone? And we spent three weeks parsing out what Paul wrote about our condition as sinners. There is none righteous, right? Starting up in verse 9, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one? Why would God do that for someone like you or for me? If there's no distinction in our nature and in our foundation to separate us from men like Hitler and Nero, if there's no distinction in our nature between us and them, why would God have any mercy on any of us? Why would God not treat us as our sins deserve? I think this is the implication of this third essential point. I cannot earn my place before God. 
If I cannot earn a place before God, then I must be in the same place where I have fallen, under the wrath of God. I am no different from anyone else. I am a sinner. I have fallen. I cannot earn my place before God. I can't change myself. Here's the fourth essential point. I must be redeemed. How is it, if I can't do it for myself, how is it that my position, my standing my, uh, can be, before God can be changed? How does God give me such grace that I am no longer under the condemnation for which I deserve? How does God undo my fallenness? Verse 24 says, All of this happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood. I must be redeemed. Right? Redemption must take place or else I'm doomed. Right? Those are the only two options. Now I've talked about this concept of redemption in Sunday school uh, the last couple of weeks, and we'll hit it again next week if you weren't there. Uh, but the idea of redemption in our society today, in our day to day, we mainly hear about redeeming coupons, right? When you think about redeeming coupons, what is actually happening? When you're redeeming coupons, there's a transaction that is taking place. And what governs that transaction is the coupon. So when you bring a coupon in saying you're going to buy a bag of cookies for $3.95, and you bring a coupon in, the coupon says buy one, get one free, what governs your transaction with the store is not the price on the shelves. No long, uh, now it is that coupon that governs that transaction. So when I present that, I get two for the price of one, don't I? Because that coupon is governing that transaction. I'm redeeming a coupon, and the coupon is overseeing that transaction. In our text, who is putting forth whom? I think I said that right. Right? Who is putting forth whom? Or is it whom is putting forth? No. Who is putting forth whom? Right? Look, this, this is precious here. It says God the Father is putting forth His Son, Jesus Christ. For what purpose? So that Jesus might govern this transaction by which we are justified. God is the one who is acquiring for Himself. God the Father is putting forward Jesus. So Jesus is the Redeemer. This means it is Jesus who governs over the transaction by which someone is changed or their position is changed before God. Again, what is it that we as sinners deserve? As those who are fallen, we deserve God's wrath. We deserve His displeasure. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? And so unless we are redeemed, we are going to remain in this state of judgment and destruction. But God puts forth His Son. The wonders, the glories of redemption. That it is Christ that is put forward. See, now what is so special about Jesus? Well, Jesus does what we cannot do, right? 
Paul says God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, a big, again, another one of these big fancy words. Um, propitiation, the simplest idea, I think, is satisfaction or the satisfaction of, of, uh, uh, of, of God's law, uh, of, of God's wrath, that which the law requires of us. Jesus is put forward as a propitiation, right? To satisfy what God's law has against us. And how does Jesus satisfy the requirements of the law? How does God satisfy what the law is demanding upon us because of our sin? Well, the way Jesus satisfies that is he puts forward or he sheds his own blood. The idea of, of, of the blood here is that it is, it is a, uh, uh, a shedding of blood. It, it is code, if you want, for death. This started all the way back in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Remember what, Jesus, uh, what, what God said to Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. On the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Now, there was physical death, there was spiritual death, and then there was also eternal death. Still the same thing today. Why do we die physically? When I preached my dad's funeral eight years ago now, I explained the reason my dad died is because he was a sinner. The wages of sin is death. Right? We die physically because of the fact that we are sinners. Right, That's because we're not the way God designed us, are we? God designed us to live in righteousness and holiness. When we fell from that, what's the consequence? Death. Why do people not enjoy God today? The answer is because they are dead spiritually. The only people that can truly enjoy God, right? Some people can enjoy their concept of God, being a false concept, a fake God. The only people who can enjoy a real God, the true God, are those who are alive, who have been made alive, who are not spiritually dead. And what is the destination for everyone who is dead spiritually after they die physically? That destination is eternal death. Our eternal death being the separation from the goodness of God. And so the shedding of blood here is shorthand for death. The way Jesus redeems people from under the law is he himself was born of a woman, born under the law. And he was born under the law in order to pay the legal requirements with his own blood and death. Because Jesus was perfect without sin, he didn't have his own debt to pay, right? If Jesus would have sinned even a small, single time, his death would have been for his own sin. But because he never sinned, he was tempted like us in all ways, like we are tempted, but he's without sin. Therefore, that qualified him to die in our place as a substitute. And so this is what propitiation is drawing upon, is dealing with. The fact that Christ died in our place to satisfy the legal demands that were upon us, that we die because of our sins. 
And now that that in Christ, now that that barrier has been removed, now that that sinfulness has been removed, now that I've been justified, what can I do? I can enjoy God. And I can enjoy heaven. That's what it is to be redeemed. The law's demands have been satisfied for me to be reconciled to God. I couldn't do this. This is all of God's grace. All of God's good pleasure. So our essential truths so so far. Number one, I am no different than anyone else. Number two, I am fallen or I am sinful. Number three, I cannot earn my place before God. Number four, I must be redeemed. And number five, if we are to be prepared for eternity and therefore enabled to be prepared for whatever comes our way in this world, the fifth essential truth is this. I must trust in Christ alone. Verse 25, God put forward Jesus as the Redeemer. How is this redemption to be accomplished? It is to be received by faith. I want you to notice this verse does not say that faith is the cause of justification. God doesn't justify us because we believe. We hear this frequently in our American Christianity. Right? They will say it is up to you to have faith. As if your faith is the cause of God's grace. Some people even have, have used the expression that God will look down through the corridors of time to see who it is that would believe and therefore because they believed He would choose them so that God's electing grace is conditioned Upon our faith. Faith is not a cause of anything. Faith is not the cause of God's grace. That is not what Paul is saying here. Faith is not the cause of justification. Rather it is the means by which we receive justification. Christ's death on the cross secured everything necessary for our justification. God's death secured and accomplished everything necessary in order to transfer us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for our atonement. But how is it that the work of Christ is applied to us? The answer is that we receive what Christ has accomplished by faith. Now I need to go back to verse 23 for a moment here. In verse 23, who does the word all refer to? I pondered this a lot while thinking about these verses. Who does the word, uh, who, who is the reference there in verse 23 to the word all? Who, what's the antecedent to all? Now, it's tempting to go back to verse 9 to find our answer. Right? Verse 9 says that all people are under sin. Right? Jew and Gentile alike, all are under sin. It would be tempting to understand all in verse 23 in light of the all in verse 29. And it makes a lot of sense, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It makes sense to understand that all in verse 23 as being the same as the all in verse 9. But that would cause a problem. Because the awe in verse 23 continues into verse 24. 
whatever is true in verse 23 must also be true in verse 24. So if all in verse 23 means every person, Jew and Gentile, of whom there is no distinction, then verse 24 would mean that every person, all, both Jew and Gentile, is justified. It is paid for by Christ. And if that were true, then what's Judas doing in hell? If it is true that Jesus paid for the sins of all people without distinction, then we've got a problem with Judas being in hell, which is the place he was destined to go. Was the atoning work of Christ not good enough? Who are we talking about in verse 23? Let's not go back to verse 9. Instead, let's go to verse 22. There the word all is qualified by another phrase. All who believe. See that? All who believe. And it is that all that continues. All those who believe are people who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which, by the way, is just like the rest of the all, all the way back in verse 9, right? But they're a different group of people. And how have they been justified? Well, God the Father put forward Jesus as the Son to be the propitiation for their sins. Right Now, this is a precious teaching here. Christ didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to actually accomplish salvation. He actually saves people. And the reason we know that Christ's atoning work on, on, on the cross was sufficient is because there are people that actually believe in Jesus Christ. We don't want to put the cart before the horse here. This fifth essential preparation for the life to come is faith. It is belief. It is trust in Jesus Christ alone because He accomplished salvation. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me close with a question for you. Going back to the, the, the very beginning of my sermon, are you prepared? Are you prepared for the life to come? Are you prepared for the world to come? To be prepared means that these five essential truths that I have laid out for you are in fact what you believe about yourself. Are you prepared? And by the way, if you're wondering how to prepare your children or grandchildren, or granddaughters, or grandsons. How do you prepare them for the things of this world? Right? You teach them, you prepare them for the world that is to come. Right? That they are no different than anyone else. That they are sinners, and they, they have fallen. That they need a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is none other than Jesus Christ. And that they need to receive Christ by faith. 
That's how we prepare. That's how we teach our children to prepare.